You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. I'm the pastor at City Church. It's good to gather this morning as a church. If you're new here or just visiting, we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, we started back in January in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just working through this important book of the Bible that really is the bridge between the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us about the life and teachings of Christ, and that points us really the rest of the Bible, the New Testament letters, actually shows us how we got there and how we got here today, uh, how God was designing his church to go take his good news of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Uh, so we're going through the book of Acts to really understand from the scriptures about how all that took place. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. Uh, I'm really thankful we have another baptism today at our 11:30 service we have baptized now by god's grace over 80 people since january isn't that uh, since november sorry isn't that awesome since november and over 50 people since january i'm just grateful the lord's doing here we want to be found faithful so we're just going to keep praying for god to move and for god to work here and for us uh, to be a faithful church that's what we want to be we want to be faithful so let's pray together and then we'll jump in our father we are thankful uh, for the parent commissioning this morning what a joy to have families stand before the church, parents with their children, and to ask for prayer and to commit to building their families on the rock that is Christ. Thankful for baptisms, for the things that you're doing here. Lord, we ask we'll be found faithful, uh, that we will do what your word tells us to do in terms of being followers of Christ, that we'll be compelled by your love to love others, that we'll be for our community, that we'll be unwavering in the scriptures, uh, because we believe that the way you speak to your people is through your word. So let us be good stewards of the reality that you have spoken to us through the scriptures. Ask me all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. We know we're not the only ones doing this, that the gospel will go forward from every pulpit in our community. We ask you to get the enemy out of this place, out of our city. I also ask you to be with those who are hurting today, uh, anyone that maybe has just walked in here going through a tough time, that they just know that you are near and that they will understand that today in Christ. Lord, I ask you to speak through me today, all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, I forgot to say, oops. I know a lot of our college students uh, have kind of already taken off uh, for the summer, uh, but we, we want to make sure we recognize anyone who graduated. Did anybody graduate this weekend? Will you stand up if you graduated this weekend? Uh, we want to give you a shout out. Awesome. And I, I'm, thankful, I'm thankful for your time here. If you're going to be in Tallahassee, great. We'd love for you to stick around. Uh, but if not, one of our goals is that you go as someone who is sent. One of our visions for our college ministry is that we create great church members. Uh, so when you go to a new city, it's a blessing that someone from City Church came to their church uh, to go and serve. So thank you all for the time here, for how you've served your church and loved your church, and we're just really grateful for it. So in Acts chapter 12, uh, Luke frames the story now to show us a new exodus. Luke is the author of Acts, and the new exodus meaning what we saw happen in the book of Exodus, where the Hebrew people were led out of their captivity, their slavery in Egypt, how God used Moses to do that. Now we're going to see a type of New Testament example of what this looks like in a literal sense, with an actual historical story that happens, but also spiritually in our lives. So Acts chapter 12, we see this, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. So serious persecution taking place here of God's people who are being defined now as being part of the church. The church is in full swing. Churches are being established in different communities and different cities. And what is King Herod doing? He's attacking them. There's martyrdom happening here. And he executed James, one of the disciples, John's brother, with the sword. So violent persecution leading to death is happening here. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, so a political move to gain some popularity, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. So I killed James, and that got me a lot of, allowed the Jews to be very happy with me, a lot of political points, and now I'm going to go after their leader, the main voice piece. 
and he arrested Peter during the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. And after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So it swings us now back to Jerusalem. We were in Antioch before, and it's showing us the gospel spreading in different places, but now we're back to the home base in Jerusalem, and Herod Agrippa is reigning. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one that tried to kill Jesus right after he was born. James is killed, and now Peter is up. It's Peter's turn to show the power of Herod Agrippa before all the watching world. This new movement called the church was no match for him. James is dead by the sword, and now Peter is in prison. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, and by law, you couldn't execute someone during the Passover, so it's about to be that time. They hold him for the week, and now they're about to take him the next morning to be executed. And we can say that Peter was as guarded in prison as someone possibly can be. Multiple guards, chained, and they had the full force around him to make sure nothing could happen to him. This is a huge win for Herod and the empire to be able to take Peter down. So when Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in the front of the door guarded the prison. It seems like a small detail, but it's fascinating to me that Peter is sleeping during this time. Like, he is going to bed knowing the next morning he's going to be executed. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I'd probably be having a panic attack. I'd be sweating all night. Maybe I'd be trying to find a way to write a letter to people. Maybe I'm leaving behind. He's sleeping. He's out cold. I would have maybe asked for my last meal if I was feeling a little bit better. Lobster, steak, maybe a double waffle from Waffle House, something along those lines. And here is Peter asleep because he knows that he is in the hands of the living God. He has seen Jesus rise from the grave himself, and because he knew that Easter was true, what is anyone going to do to him? Yes, it would be painful. Yes, it would be a serious thing for the church to have this happen, but Peter knows he rests in the hands of God. And what's the church doing? They're not staging a protest. They're not trying to create some sort of prison break escape. They're praying. They're praying. And I don't know about you, but I think even though I pray, that oftentimes it is just a routine for me. Now that's not all bad, routine's good. Like we wanna have rhythms in our lives and healthy habits. I don't think every time you pray it has to be some like utopia of like you and God and like this great moment where the whole world changes. But how easy is it to pray as if no one is listening? How easy is that? To sort of throw some words up and forget that you actually have the ear of the creator of the universe. That the one who rose Jesus from the dead is also the one who is listening to you. And the church in this, mo- in this moment, what are they doing? They're praying. I like it's mocked today. When people say things like thoughts and prayers, it gets mocked. I don't know what thoughts do. If I'm in trouble, please don't thought me, okay? Please, please pray for me. I don't care if I'm in your thoughts or, my, or vibes or whatever it might be. But praying is the means that God uses in his sovereignty to accomplish his divine will. 
and the world thinks the gospel's foolishness already, so don't let yourself be intimidated by the fact that prayers are mocked. Because we're told the prayer of the righteous availeth very much. And here's the church praying. Albert Muller wrote this, when the church is found to be faithful, it is always found praying. Because Peter, while he's sleeping, and while the church is praying, is his only hope of escape is divine intervention. That is it. He's the most guarded person you possibly could imagine up to this time. The only possible way to escape death and to get out of prison and to make sure that Herod's sword does not fall on him would only be if God intervened miraculously. While this is an actual historic event that took place, it also points us to a greater truth that the same is true of us. That this story literally is our story spiritually. That the only hope for us to escape the prison of death of being under the just just punishment for our sins because of our rebellion against God, because of our idol worship, because of our putting identity in other things rather than the Lord, the only way that that can be changed for us is divine intervention. Is God actually doing a work, God actually moving on our behalf. We're told in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins. Not barely hanging on, not kicking and screaming, not holding out for hope, dead in our sins. But God, by his grace, has made us alive in Jesus Christ. It is divine intervention that allowed anyone in this room that claims to be a Christian that allowed us to be people who were saved. And by saved, it means saved from our sins and the punishment from our sins. And not just saved from it, but also saved to something, which is life with God. Life in a relationship with the Lord, of knowing him, being known by him, understanding his love for us, being a part of his family. That only took place because God is the one who acted. Psalm 107. He brought them out of the darkness and gloom and broke their chains apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has broken down the bronze gates and cut through the iron bars. That is what happened at your salvation. That God intervened and cut through the the bars of sin and death. Back to the text, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. So the church is praying, Peter's sleeping. And an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke up and said, quick, get up. Why would it give us that random detail about him being struck on the side? Why wouldn't it just say he just told him to get up, tapped him, or just that he went over and you know, shook him for a minute and told him to get up? Many theologians believe that this is putting us back to Calvary's cross where Jesus was actually poked on the side to show us that God's plan at the cross and the resurrection is still happening and working and unveiling and that what he accomplished for us is real and powerful and it continues to go. And what happened? The chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what the angel did was really happening, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought maybe he's just he's still kind of half asleep, not really sure what's going on. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself, the first automatic gate in the history of the world that God, is, God has instituted here for us. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. I mean, poor Peter. He's sleeping, 
Apparently he sleeps naked and bare feet because he sleeps naked. It's like, get your cloak. He only has sandals, not Chaco, so kind of hard to navigate. He gets out. The angel is leading him. He's still kind of delirious. And then the angel goes, hey, you're good. I'm out of here. Why was Peter good? Because God had freed him. And God was with him. So when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. I would hope that if you're in this room and you claim to be a Christian, that you know for sure that God has rescued you, that you have confidence in that. You're not still going, have I done enough? Have I performed enough? Have I been spiritual enough? Have I done enough good deeds to cancel out my bad deeds? Rather than said that you rest in the reality that God is the one who has rescued you. The iron gate would have been very heavy. It was used for military purposes, also to stop intruders into the area. And here God opens it right up. I mean, compare all this to the movie Shawshank Redemption. One of my favorite movies. One of those movies that when it's on TV late at night and I'll flip in the channels, and like my favorite show, Wrestling's Not On, I'll watch that for a little bit. Don't judge. You like Pokemon things, don't judge. I can watch wrestling. But Shawshank is a really, it's, I'm guessing a lot of you maybe don't want to assume, but, and it's, it came out like 30 years ago, so this is a spoiler, that's your problem, so you should have seen it by now. Uh, but much of the theme of the movie uh, is Andy Dufresne trying to escape from this maximum security prison from a crime that he didn't commit. And here he is with this elaborate plan that took years and years of him working his way out. I mean, his plans that were so detailed uh, that no one knew about until he was finally gone. I mean, it's like this, so basically the whole second half of the movie is this plan happening. There was so much that went into the details of him and his efforts to escape prison. That's not what happened here. There was nothing Peter could do. Nothing. Except depend on the sovereign grace of God to do a work. We cannot walk out of prison doors on our own. We're not even halfway contributors. God is the one who walks in and picks us up and carries us out into freedom and new life. That's why we call it amazing grace. That's why we sing about the love of God and his faithfulness because he has done the work. Don't forget, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. The sin that made it necessary. Jesus is the one who paid it all and did all the work. So a new exodus is happening here. Herod is like a Pharaoh type of figure, oppressing God's people, imprisoning God's people. And now here God uses the angel to lead Peter out of slavery and captivity into freedom. Richard Purvo, who's a Acts commentator, wrote this. As the exodus formed the Israelites, it was their defining moment. So the exodus of Jesus through his resurrection and ascension and Peter, from this prison story, form the new people of God. That God is doing a work now of freeing and redeeming his people. Exodus 18, 4, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. That is what God has done for us in Christ. We've been rescued from, ultimately, his punishment of sin and the wrath of God. And the rescue from Pharaoh and from Herod points us to the greater rescue that we have in Christ. It's a picture of how God rescues his people. James Montgomery Boyce, the late Philadelphia pastor, wrote this, that Peter's case was hopeless, humanly speaking. He was in prison surrounded by guards. He was asleep. He was condemned to die. His case pictures us in our sin. We are chained by sin and unable to escape. 
We're even asleep in sin, insensitive to it, until God sends his Holy Spirit to break our shackles and free us. This is a good picture of what God does with us in salvation. He sends his light to illuminate the spiritual darkness of our lives and strikes off the shackles of sin so we might be free to follow Jesus. Isn't it amazing what God has done? I think it should also lead Christians to be as least judgmental as possible. Why? Because we understand that we're not morally superior to anyone. It is God who's done the work. It is God we depend on. The only difference between us and a non-believer is Jesus. He's the one. So back to the text, it says, as soon as he realized this, this being, or this being Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So were the believers still doing their praying together as a church in a home. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Poor Peter. He's out of jail. He comes to the house. He's knocking. They come to the door, and she gets excited and runs away and leaves him standing there. It's like, hello, what about me? In verse 15, this doesn't just tell our story. I don't know what does. What do the believers say? You're out of your mind, they told her. They were praying that something would happen. Something happens, as in God answers their prayer, and they don't believe it's true. How often, again, do we forget that there's someone actually listening to our prayers? They're not just empty words that we throw up. Now, does God answer every single prayer exactly the way we want them to be answered? No. I mean, we see James that was martyred at the very beginning of the text. I'm sure they were praying for James. I'm sure they had confusion at times. God, why? God, why? But they still knew they could trust him, and they knew that he was good because everything that had been promised to God's people had come true in Jesus Christ, and that would be a reality and true for all eternity. But she kept insisting, this is Rhoda, the servant girl, and it was true, and they said, it's his angel. At least that, it's not Peter, but it's probably his angel. That'll at least explain it a little bit. Peter, however, kept on knocking. You see in Revelation, Jesus knocking at the door of the church, saying, hey, you believe in me, but let me in. Make your church about me. But he kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Look what God has done. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James, not James who was martyred, James the brother of Jesus who would go on to write the book of James and pastor the church in Jerusalem, the same place where this is all taking place. And the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. We don't really see Peter much again. He writes letters later, he's mentioned in letters, but Peter in Acts is not a prominent figure anymore. Why? Because he was freed to go tell others about freedom. He left to go on his mission and to keep doing the work of the Lord. But Rhoda sticks out to us here. She becomes a main character in this story, just mentioned for a moment, but she's a servant, we're told. And she's the first one to see Peter freed and the first one to know this good news. It's not a coincidence that we're told that it's those who are weak, those who are lowly, who really do first taste the kingdom of God. Not those who have it all figured out. Not those who believe they have so much to offer the world because of their goodness and because of their righteousness. The ones that know they don't depend on a foreign righteousness. 
This is the gospel in motion here that a servant girl, as she was called, would be the first one to understand and to see. How great is God's grace and how upside down it is compared to the wisdom of this world. And at daylight, we're back on the scene of the prison break. There was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And Herod, like, who does he think he is? He, he, he can't think, oh, God rescued him. After Herod had searched and did not find him. It's like, you think that's going to work? A little hide and seek in the prison? He interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Got to blame somebody, right? Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea. So he's leaving the Jewish context and going down to the Roman-occupied area to really associate with them fully and be their ruler, and he stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, interesting job there, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. We had said last week there was a famine in the land. There was work being done for relief efforts. Herod had provided food for these people in this area. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne. Shout out to Charles yesterday. Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout. It's the voice of a God, not of a man. Here's a guy who couldn't keep Peter in jail with the best guards and system ever, and they're proclaiming him to be a God and not a man. He didn't refute it. So what happens? At once, an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. The great Agrippa becomes lunch for worms. Such are those who stand against the holy God. Because the reason that God created the world and then saved his people for himself was to make a name for himself. Yes, it was in love. Yes, it was in his compassion and mercy. But all of those things point to something greater, which is the glory and greatness of God. That he is doing what only he can do, which is save a people from himself, save people from sin. We're saved by God, from God, for God. Saved by God, from our sins, saved from God, from his just punishment of sins, and now saved for God, to be in relationship with him and to go be his missionaries into all the world. But the temptation from the very beginning, back to Genesis, was to want to be God or be like God. The Old Testament, and we see stories like this in the New Testament, tell us over and over that he will not give his glory to anyone else. Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us. Like, to your name be the glory. And we are people who don't give glory to God on a regular basis. So why does that not happen to us, what happened to Herod? Well, the reason why it doesn't happen is simply because of grace. That we have received the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And that also, it points to something greater, that God will one day judge the world. If you're in Christ, you will not be judged because Jesus is judged in your place. It's by grace and grace alone. John Stott writes this, the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on a rampage. He's arresting and persecuting. That's the beginning. But at the end, he himself struck, is struck down and dies. The chapter opens kind of depressing, doesn't it? James is dead. Peter's in prison. Herod is triumphing. It's like, what? 
Do we have any hope here? What about the whole church thing? Didn't Jesus say that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it? Didn't you say before you left Jesus that the Holy Spirit would be with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us? Acts chapter 12, what's going on? We're huddled up in our house praying. We're scared. We're terrified. The chapter closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. All we can say to that is such is the power of our God. He overthrows the hostile human plans and establishes his own place. And if it might not look like he's doing it right now in our world, be not mistaken, one day it will come to pass. Verse 24, but the word of God spread and multiplied. Zach Meredith, one of our staff members back in January and we were reading about Acts even before that, he said, I think this is the theme verse of the whole book. Persecution coming, hostility, but what's happening? The word of God is spreading and it's multiplying. You look around some of those hostile parts of the world right now and you'll see the word of God spreading and multiplying. There's only two continents on the face of the earth right now where Christianity is not rapidly growing. North America and Europe. Only two places. It's one of the reasons why we started Let's Go and Care About Next Generation Ministry a lot. Because we want to say, not on our watch. Not on our watch. How often, those of you who graduated that are still faithful to the Lord, I mean, that, how uncommon is it, or excuse me, how common is it, I should say, for people raised in Christian families? I know some of you came to faith here at the church, but, but for others who are raised in Christian families, do they go away to college and they're nowhere to be seen again when it comes to the faith? Just get sucked up into the things of this world. Bow down to the figurative care to grippas of this world not realizing that he got eaten by worms. That God is not dead. That he is ruling and he's reigning. That Jesus rose from the grave and it is worth it. So here we are right now. The only two continents, North America and Europe. So what do we do? We're people who pray, we're people who go, and we're people who remain faithful by God's grace. After they completed their relief mission because of the famine, Barnabas and Saul, during compassion ministry, return to Jerusalem, taking along John, who is called Mark. So I got a few takeaways here, just reminders from the story. One is that God is never not in control. It's one thing to say that God is in control, and it's kind of cliche, like God's in control, God's in control, and it's like, I know. But the reason why it's a cliche is that it's true. But there's more to it than that. Let's put that back up on the screen, please. Person in the back, thank you. If God is, that was good. If God is in control, it means he's never not in control. And here that's why that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. One, because we're humans. This side of heaven, we're in a fallen state, we're never gonna fully grasp. But we struggle with the fact that God exists for himself. And we often think the reason that God exists is for us. So anything that goes outside the lines of what we think God should do for us all of a sudden becomes a theological issue where we then doubt God and his greatness and his control and his power. But God has made us promises. And those promises are never that life here is always gonna be awesome. What he's promised us is that life with him is always gonna be abundant. So the greatest promise that God gives us is himself and life with him. And one of the greatest things we can believe that he's never not in control. That's why Peter could go to sleep. 
That's why the disciples are praying. I don't know what's going on in that house. They're not told a lot of details. They were crying out to God, knowing that if he wanted Peter to be freed, he could. And he would. God's never not in control. Number two, the mission will always receive opposition, but it will never be stopped. Always going to receive opposition. If, 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 if Jesus was hated, why wouldn't the world be hated? Excuse me, why wouldn't the world hate us, I mean? If Jesus was hated, why wouldn't we be hated? Now, we should never be hateful, but we shouldn't be surprised when opposition comes our way. One thing I think the culture war gets extremely wrong is the idea that we can do something. We can do something that allows God's word to triumph more. As if we're in control of that. What we can do is we can be people who follow Jesus into the world and believe in his grace. But notice that Peter, rather than sleeping, didn't go, if I was just a little more winsome and a little more compassionate, a little more hospitable, maybe they let me go. Maybe if the believers instead weren't like, you know what, we shouldn't pray because you know, I'm, t- I'm tired of thoughts and prayers. Let's go do some action. And they would go and try to think up something clever and something powerful and have a protest and a guest speaker and all these things. It's always received opposition. We will never make the world like us more, and if we do, it's probably because we're compromising. But you know what we do? We love anyways. We care anyways. Why? Because we're not living for their approval. We're living out of the approval of God who has called us to live in this world but not of it. Like, don't be intimidated when the world comes at you and opposes over and over again. Because it might be slowed down by our minds, it'll never stop. The mission will never stop. Why? Because Jesus is building his church. Romans, or Acts chapter 12. James is dead, Peter's in prison, Herod's reigning. 25 verses later, flipped. Just like that. He absolutely continues He can still do that today. And he's doing it every single time he saves a new person from their sins and makes a new creation. We sang great is thy faithfulness earlier. We talked about how he meets our need. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need was we needed a savior and God has provided that for us. No war, no battle can achieve that. Only the grace of God can. The third thing, Jesus still frees prisoners today. He still rescues people from their sins. He still frees people from death. He still opens figuratively the iron gates and takes us into a new life. There's no one in this room and there's not one person you know that is too far away to be loved by God and to experience the grace of God. He still frees prisoners. He freed you, so guess what? He can free someone else. And the fourth thing is that God's glory is the goal. Like that's the point of it all. That's hard in a world where we think we're the goal, like we're the point, God's glory is the goal. We're made to be worshipers of him. When we fall short, it's because we're not worshiping him, worshiping other things, but God's glory is the goal. God's glory is the reward. And I want my view of God to be so big that I don't have a problem with that. I actually believe that. But when God's a big guy upstairs or a divine Santa or a grandpa figure or Yoda from Star Wars or something along those lines, then statements like that are going to give us problems. They're going to things we struggle with. We believe that God is God, that he is the one who is great. As much as our minds can possibly comprehend, that we're going to say, yes, his glory is the goal. And then we see how huge his love is for us. 
because we stand opposed to his glory. Yet, he still intervened and rescued a people and made his glory known by so loving the world that he gave his only son. So our believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He rose from the grave and one day will come again to make all things new forever. So in the meantime, let's follow Jesus and not Herod. Because Herod gets eat, eaten by worms. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. I ask we'll have confidence in it. I know that every question we have doesn't get answered, but we know that you are God, that you have made a promise to your people in Christ, and that one day we will all be redeemed once and for all. So in the meantime, Lord, I ask we'll be found faithful, that we'll be on your mission, that we'll not feel the pressures of this world, but rather we'll live our lives from the posture of knowing we're loved by you and approved by you. We have nothing to prove. So we already failed the test. We rebelled against you. We weren't for your glory. But Jesus never failed the test. So we look to Christ and not ourselves. How freeing that is and that begins to be grasped in our minds and in our hearts. Open our eyes to see that it really is about Jesus and that you're the one who intervenes. You're the one who does the work. I know there's some in this room that probably have felt the weight of religion. They have to measure up, do more. They walk around feeling guilty, unsure of where they stand with you. We're thankful that you have given us in certainty the reality that where we stand with you depends on the work of Jesus on our behalf, and if we believe that in faith. So Lord, let your kindness lead us to repentance. I want to live our lives for your glory and that alone. And that's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up and sing some good news together.